In the months leading up to the U.S. military's briefing of Congress on UFOs at the end of June, we've been examining the phenomenon from a number of angles. Today we're going to look at one of the most sinister, the Men in Black, or MIB, phenomenon. After some UFO sightings, various people have said that they've been visited by men. Very often three, all dressed in black, wearing black hats and dark sunglasses, who never show ID and who warned them off spreading what they thought they'd seen around. The men seem a little off. They speak sometimes as if maybe English is not their first language, sometimes with an accent, but sometimes also just in this weird way, almost like the whole concept of speaking with your mouth and throat is alien to them, weirdly over-enunciating words and slurring others. They move as if they are not used to being in their own bodies. Sometimes their faces seem too smooth and too pale, or sometimes too dark, almost as if they're wearing a mask of some kind, and sometimes their heads are just a little bit too big. And the whole impression is one that they are perhaps wearing a whole human body costume. One thing's for sure, they are extremely menacing, not often in a particularly overt way, but in just somehow this creepy vibe that they send out. People who encounter the Men in Black do not find them fun, like the Men in Black movies with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And yes, their description sounds an awful lot like they've dressed up as the Blues Brothers, who are fun. But they are certainly not fun for the people who encounter them. A paper in the Journal of American Folklore sees similarities between the modern MIB phenomenon and much older Encounter with the Devil tales. So maybe the Men in Black have been around a lot longer than we think. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. As I mentioned back in the Science Grudges in Blue Books episode, the first mention of the Men in Black is during the Maury Island UFO incident in 1947. A man named Harold Dahl was on a boat outside Seattle when a donut-shaped UFO dripped liquid metal onto his boat, injuring his son's arm and killing his dog. And after he reported it to the authorities, he was visited by a strange man dressed all in black who told him to shut the hell up about the incident. The Uncanny, the Uncanny Valley, Valley. In 1970, Japanese roboticist Masahiro Mori coined the term Shinwakan, a complex concept that uses ideas like familiarity and comfort level to describe a feeling that the sense of the familiar and of being in sync with another human suddenly drops away, leaving you feel like you're in the presence of something that is not quite right. This term has been translated into English as the uncanny valley which is not actually a great translation since the word uncanny means strangely but unexplainably familiar 
And Maury's term really is describing the opposite, the sudden feeling of alienness and an attendant instinctual-seeming revulsion. Maury meant it in the context of trying to create robots that would somehow come across as more human to us and so evoke more positive emotional responses. A good deal of sensory data we humans take in is ignored by the conscious mind, but it is still there kind of hanging around in the background. This is why sometimes you can walk into a building and somehow know that it's empty, even though you haven't explored all of it. You have no hard evidence for that one way or another. It's really more of a feeling than direct knowledge because your brain is taken in the way your footfall echoes, temperature differentials in the air, and dozens of tiny little details that it hasn't bothered to store or uh, that your mind is unaware of. The same sort of thing happens when you get the feeling that someone is in a room, even though, again, you've consciously seen and heard nothing. This is where a lot of what we call intuition comes from. Sensory data not consciously perceived, but held in reserve in case we need it later. This is why people who see the black-eyed children mentioned in the previous episode and the men in black report a strange feeling of otherness or something not rightness that evokes a fear and revulsion response. Beam me down, Bender. The International Flying Saucers Bureau, or IFSB, was the first major civilian UFO club. They published Space Review Magazine, and they created World Contact Day. The idea for this is that maybe aliens can communicate telepathically, so if a whole lot of people, all on the same day, try to send them telepathic messages of peace and welcome, then they will come. That day is March 15th every year. The founder of the IFSB is Albert K. Bender, who started it in 1952. Membership grew steadily, and then suddenly, he shut the whole thing without warning in September the following year. He later told his friends and fellow IFSB members, Gray Barker and Dominic Lucchesi, that he'd had some insight into the origin of UFOs, and he wrote it down and sent it to a friend of his. Shortly afterwards, three men, dressed in black, came to his home two of them communicating via telepathy, and the third just staring at him in the eyes the whole time. They told him that his insight was correct, that he was the only person to have actually figured it all out, and they gave him even more details as well as a metal disc of some sort. Shortly after this visit, he became ill, suffering severe headaches, being unable to eat, and much difficulty sleeping for three days. He would not share with his friends what the mysterious men told him because he said, if it got out, it would destroy human civilization. Science would fall into disarray, governments would fail, and society would disintegrate. This is because everything that we think we know about the universe is totally wrong. Gray Barker wrote a little bit about this in his 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And this incident with Albert Bender would become the foundational account of the men in black phenomenon. Bender really didn't want to talk about what he'd been told by the three strange men. But in 1962, he relented publishing his own book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men. However, Bender's book did little to create clarity. It's a weird, disjointed tale that has a lot of very unusual elements. For example... He says he was subjected to astral projection, his spirit being moved to a secret flying saucer base in Antarctica. There he saw creatures that were male, female, and both sexes at once, but not humans, and they were from another planet. He learned there that Mars had once had a civilization and was covered in canals, and today you could find abandoned cities there. The aliens told him that Russia would destroy the world with nuclear weapons, 
and that the sun was going to go nova very soon and wipe out all life on Earth. And there's a lot more. It's so odd that some people have suggested that maybe he wrote it to be purposefully opaque so as to not cause too much disruption. Or maybe, most logically, he had some sort of a mental break, especially since many of the things that he said were certainly going to happen have not. This stuff sure sounds like schizophrenia. And Dominic Lucchesi, who knew him well, said he acted almost like somebody who'd been lobotomized. He'd walk around in a daze, talk slowly, and whenever he thought about telling people the secrets he'd learned, he was prevented by a sudden crippling headache. If that's true, though, you do have to wonder how he managed to write a whole book about it. He had another visit, but this time by shadowy figures who floated above the floor and told him that human appearance is an illusion, a projection being forced upon humans to hide the true nature of the universe. I mean, this again sounds like the Philip K. Dick Vallis. And that no one would believe anything that he had to say because the illusion fooled everyone. They also mentioned to him that sometimes they took over humans to use as disguises. Again, this really sounds like schizophrenia. Gray, Gray Barker. Bender would go on to become a motel manager in California and never talk about his experiences again. His friend Lucchesi thought that the men in black, who Bender called the silencers, were real, but he thought they were from some human organization that is hiding in a remote place here on Earth, maybe deep in the Amazon or in the Himalayas or maybe even underground. His other friend, Gray Barker, would go on to have quite a career writing about UFOs, Men in Black, The Mothman in West Virginia, Lee Harvey Oswald, Nikola Tesla, and later books with a guy who goes by the name Valiant Thor, real name supposedly Tapper Thor, a shadowy figure who advised the Pentagon during the Cold War, who some people think is either an alien from Sirius, or maybe from Mars or Venus, or a Norwegian-looking human-alien hybrid, and who believes in godlike energy beings called the Vril. We will talk more about Valiant Thor and the Vril in a future episode. People who knew Barker said he was very much cashing in on the flying saucer fever, and he thought the whole thing was rather comical. They didn't say this until after his death in 1984, however. In 1998, an article in the Skeptical Inquirer titled, Gray Barker, My Friend the Mythmaker, has John C. Sherwood recounting how he and Barker, back in the late 60s, had concocted the whole men in black idea, they called them black men, <clears throat> under the pseudonym of Dr. Richard H. Pratt in an article for Flying Saucers magazine. There have been two documentaries made about Ray Barker, the 1995 Whispers from Space, which is about UFO fans in general, and the 2009 Shades of Grey, which is all about Barker being one of the greatest hoaxers of the 20th century. So perhaps Gray Barker is the man who created the whole thing for his own purposes. <clears throat> but, but was, was he, he telling, telling the, the truth? truth? Was, was he, he maybe part, part of a of government, government disinformation campaign, campaign like, like Majestic 12? 12? Or did he just take advantage of a friend's failing mental health in order to basically troll America and turn a nice profit in the process? Even Ray Palmer, founder of Fate Magazine and known as the father of flying saucers, says he thinks that the Men in Black is a hoax. Among other things, he says that he has had contact with people from just about every branch of government, and they always show identification, and the Men in Black never do. And keep in mind, 
Ray Palmer is a guy who thinks that he suffered a telekinetic attack from the Darrow, a subterranean species living in the sunken continent of Lemuria, who have great mental abilities and dislike surface-dwelling humans, that levitated him in the air and slammed him down while unstopping a drain in his basement. He thinks the MIB is nonsense. More than a few MIBs. Okay, so if it was all made up, why have there been so many sightings of the mysterious Men in Black? Harold Dahl's stories from 1947, that's way before Bender and Barker. In February 1955, around the same time that Bender allegedly astrally projected to Antarctica, a New Zealander named John H. Stewart saw a UFO that dropped a piece of metal. He picked it up and took it home, because of course he would. The next day, a man showed up, dressed in black, saying that he had more right to that hunk of metal than Stewart did, and then told him so many secrets about UFOs that Stewart became extremely afraid and surrendered the metal piece to the stranger and never spoke of it again. Well, (laughs) until his 1963 book, UFO Warning. That book fits very much into an overarching narrative that a lot of these early UFO people were weaving together, that there are good aliens and there are bad aliens, that reality is not what we think it is, and that the aliens are not what we think they are, that psychic abilities are real, but scientifically explainable once you understand the real science in the real reality, and so on and so forth. What detergent detergent do you you use? use? It was the winter of 1961 near Minot, North Dakota, and that means pretty darn cold. A guy who worked for the Air Force, Paul Miller, and his three friends had just finished up their hunting trip and were returning home when they saw what they later called a luminous silo landing in a field off the road. They thought maybe it was some kind of unusual airplane that had crashed and they went there to help the pilot. But when they got to the spot, the object vanished. Shrugging, they piled in the car and started to drive off. Suddenly, it appeared again, this time with two humanoid figures coming out of it. Miller freaked out and shot one of them, because, you know, that's what you do. Miller and his friends took off on foot in panic, heading in the general direction of Miller's house, and then suddenly they found themselves back in Minot, with three hours having passed and no memories of what had happened during that time. Classic missing time stuff from alien abduction lore, but way before Bud Hopkins started his investigations. More about that in the previous episode. They decided to just kind of keep it between themselves. It was weird and unexplainable and a little bit embarrassing. The next day, Miller went to work at the local Air Force base and three men in black came into his office. Tall men dressed in black, weird faces, offering no credentials, but saying they worked for a secret branch of the government. They asked him about what he'd seen the night before, which was unusual since he had literally told no one else. And rather threateningly, they said they hoped he was telling the truth about what had happened in that field. They seemed to know everything about him. They knew his work history, his past, his school days. They asked him questions about high school and his childhood. And they always asked their questions in such a way that suggested they already knew the answers. And they were doing this to kind of scare him, to let him know that they had the goods on him and he had no secrets. They also said they wanted to take a closer look at the clothes he'd been wearing the night before. Weird, but okay. He escorted them back to his house. When they got to Miller's place, they very carefully examined all of the clothes he'd been wearing the night before, and then they left, saying as they departed that the whole incident the night before was, quote, best left in the dark. 
the Solway Firth Spaceman. There's a photograph by British fireman, local history buff, and photographer Jim Templeton taken on May 23, 1964, that has had ufologists talking about it ever since. He was taking some snaps of his five-year-old daughter Elizabeth at Berg Marsh, which looks out over Solway Firth in Cumbria, but when he got home and developed the pictures, there's a weird figure behind her in one of them. It very much looks like someone wearing a white bodysuit with a helmet or some kind of a hood with a face covering of some sort. It almost looks like a radiation suit or a space suit. And yet, he had seen no one behind her when he took the picture, so what the heck is that? He sent the negative to Kodak, who confirmed that the picture was real and the figure in the picture was actually there when he opened the shutter and there were no flaws in the film. I mean, maybe there had been somebody there and he just hadn't noticed. Mm. He took the picture to the local police to see if they could help identify this figure. From there, the Cumberland Press wrote about it and published the picture in the paper, and the paper became rather famous. Story got picked up by the Daily Mail and the Express, and pretty soon the whole country was buzzing about what was known as the Solway Spaceman. Shortly after the news story ran, two men visited Templeton. The men were quite tall, well over six feet, wearing bowler hats and dressed all in black. They offered no identification or even names, saying that they were designated by numbers only. They were known as number 9 and number 10, though the BBC says it was number 9 and number 11. They rather forcefully insisted that he take them to the spot where he'd snapped the photo. He complied, and they drove to the location. When they got to the exact spot, number 9 and number 10, or number 11, just kept insisting that he must have seen the figure standing behind his daughter. He told them over and over again that he had not. So they became angry, accusing him of lying, and stormed off, leaving him alone in the middle of Berg Marsh. He had no way back, and he had to walk home. He just figured it was all some sort of a colossal prank, and that was that. In 2014, people did a more modern analysis of the Solway Spaceman photo taken by Templeton, and it seems to suggest that the picture is actually Templeton's wife in the background. With her head turned mostly away from the camera, she'd wandered into the shot by mistake, and the image is so overexposed that it looks like she's wearing a white outfit, but actually she's wearing a pale blue dress that day, which you can see in other pictures. And her short bobbed hair, because it's kind of out of focus and overexposed, looks a little bit like a faceplate. He hadn't noticed her because cameras back in those days didn't have a viewfinder that lined up exactly with what the lens saw, so you really only saw about three quarters of what would end up in your picture. If you keep this explanation in mind and look at the Solway Spaceman photograph, you can see that that is absolutely totally what it is. But as for the two rude bowler hat wearing fellows, no explanations are forthcoming. Who the heck were they? An MIB gets random. In 1965, a highway inspector in Santa Ana, California named Rex Heflin took some pictures of a UFO and a few days later was visited by a man with NORAG credentials who demanded that he hand over the pictures. He did not tell the shirty NORAG guy that he'd made copies and was keeping them, so he gave some of the pictures over. These photos are considered some of the most credible photos of a UFO ever taken. In 1966, two schoolboys say they were chased by a UFO in Norwalk, Connecticut. The next day, a man showed up at their school and questioned them for three hours, having gained entrance by telling the principal that he was part of a government organization so secret he couldn't even say its name. In 1967, two years after he'd taken his famous photos, 
Heflin was visited at home by a man who identified himself as Captain C.H. Edmonds of the Space Systems Division, Systems Command, an Air Force group that was examining his pictures. He asked Heflin if he wanted the pictures back and was clearly relieved when he said he didn't need them. Of course, he'd kept some and, and kept the negatives. Then, out of the blue, this Captain Edmonds starts talking about the Bermuda Triangle, about how sometimes ships and planes, but mainly planes, disappear there, and some people think it's related to UFOs, and other people think it's some kind of naturally occurring electromagnetic disturbance. Heflin listened to all this, rather puzzled, looking around, glanced out the window. He saw a car with some sort of lettering on his driver's side door parked across the street, but he couldn't make out what the lettering said. Sitting in the back seat of that car was a figure illuminated by some sort of glowing violet light that he thought came from instrument dials of some sort. He also had that feeling that somehow he was being recorded and photographed surreptitiously, some of that uncanny valley stuff mentioned before. And while this Captain Edmonds was talking at length about the Bermuda Triangle, Heflin's FM radio, which was on, started letting out these loud pops. Heflin later contacted the Air Force about this strange encounter, and they said, sorry, there is no one named Captain C.H. Edmonds working for us. I hope you have insurance. Robert Richardson was driving along one 1967 night near Toledo, Ohio, when he crashed into something in the road, a metallic craft of some sort. It vanished into thin air almost as soon as he'd stopped his car and got out. There were just his own tire's skid marks that then ended abruptly. However, he did find a metal lump on the road, so he took it home. He then sent it to APRO, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, for analysis. At 11 p.m. the next evening, a 1953 black Cadillac with unregistered plates that looked completely new, despite the fact that it would be 14 years old, rolled up to his home and two young men dressed in black got out. They said they were from the government, but offered no ID. Richard at first assumed that they were from APRO, since he had told no one else about this weird collision. Well, I mean, he did tell his wife. They asked some questions in a nice enough way, and then they left. A couple of weeks later, two more men came by, similarly dressed, this time, quote, foreign-seeming with olive skin and are they wearing makeup? One of them certainly had some kind of odd accent. At first, they tried telling him, no, he had not crashed into anything that night on the road. Did he agree? He did not agree, and they turned a bit hostile, demanding that he turn over the piece of metal that he'd found. He explained to them that he'd already sent it on to APRO for analysis, and they said that as soon as APRO sent the metal back to him, he would have to surrender it to them, or something terrible would happen to his wife. They said, quote, If you want your wife to stay as pretty as she is, then you better get the metal back. When he finally did get the sample back, with inconclusive results, the two men never showed up again, and nothing ever happened to Richardson or his wife. This is one of the funny things about a lot of these MIB reports. They often threaten, either overtly or by insinuation, and yet many people they've tried to intimidate tell their stories anyway, I mean, that's how we know about them, and then nothing bad actually happens to them. It's like the men in black don't understand people at all. I'm surrounded. I'm surrounded. 
On May 3, 1975, 23-year-old pilot Carlos de Santos was flying his Piper PA-23 Aztec from Zihuataneo on the Pacific coast to Mexico City on a routine flight. He noticed something strange on his radio navigation system off to his left, so he diverted to go see what it was. You can probably see what's coming. Yes, he saw a craft of some kind, a gray saucer-shaped craft. It was small, smaller than his Piper. His Piper was about 31 feet long, nose to tail, and had a 37-foot wingspan. So this thing was smaller than that. And it had what looked like a cockpit bubble on top, but with the windows blacked out. It started following along with his plane, and then Carlos had another of those uncanny valley sensations that he was being watched. So he looked off to his right, and there was an identical craft over there following along. Then a third one showed up in front of him. That one then dropped down from view, so he dipped the nose of the plane to see where it had gone, and it had not gone very far because his plane hit it, scraping along the bottom of his fuselage. Suddenly, he felt like he was no longer controlling the plane and that somehow these three craft were. He radioed a mayday to the tower, telling them what was going on, adding, I'm surrounded. They instructed him to slow down and land somewhere, anywhere, as soon as he could find a safe spot. He started to do so, and the three small craft peeled off, shooting off towards Mount Popocatapetl Volcano at extremely high speed. As he was dropping lower, his instruments showed that that collision had damaged his landing gear. The airport, which wasn't far, cleared all other air traffic while he circled and circled and circled trying to figure out what he could do. He finally ended up using a screwdriver he had in the cockpit to jimmy something and managed to get the landing gear extended. So he'd made it. He was checked out at a medical clinic. They checked him to make sure he hadn't been taking drugs or something and, and everything was fine and he was cleared to fly again. Radar controllers in the tower confirmed that they had also seen three small objects up there with him maneuvering in exactly the way that he described. The case made first national news in Mexico and then international news. Some versions of the story say that the American project Blue Book even came down to take a look at it, but Blue Book was disbanded in 1969 and this happened in 1975, so that's probably not true. However, after this story became a new sensation, Carlos was visited by what can only be described as a man in black who told him to stop talking about it, ignore all requests for interviews, stop talking to the press, and so on, or his family would suffer the consequences. He, of course, ignored these warnings and has suffered no repercussions. So apparently, this is not exclusively a phenomenon of the English-speaking world. Nothing, Nothing up, up my up sleeve! My sleeve. In 1976, Herbert Hopkins was consulting in Old Orchard, Maine on a case of an alleged UFO abduction. He was a doctor. One night, the phone rang and a voice on the other end asked him if he was alone. He said he was. His wife and kids had literally just walked out to go someplace. The caller identified himself as the VP of something called the New Jersey UFO Organization and asked if he could come up there to Maine to talk about the case he was working on. Hopkins said, sure, that would be fine, and hung up, and less than a minute later, there was a knock on the door, and it was this man. Remember, this is 1976, way before mobile phones. There was no public phone nearby, and there was no car on the road in front of the house. Puzzled, but okay, why not? Hospitable enough. Hopkins let the man in. The man was wearing an overly large black suit with a black shirt and seemed normal enough, but Hopkins' dog really took a dislike to the stranger, barking, 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 and then running off and hiding. As the man entered the room, Hopkins noticed that he, he actually was a little bit odd. His skin was uniformly pale, perfectly smooth, almost like plastic. He had a very small nose, very, very small ears, practically no chin, and a thin, straight mouth with bright red lipstick on it. 
the man took out a small copper coin, put it into Hopkins' hand, and then did something that made it seem to dematerialize right in front of his eyes. This coin will never appear in this realm again, the man said. He then told the doctor to destroy all his documents about the UFO abduction case he was working on. And then in, a, in an opaque and oddly veiled threat, the man talked about another UFO abductee who had recently died in mysterious circumstances, saying that just like how that man no longer had a heart, Dr. Hopkins no longer had a coin. What was he trying to suggest? That the man he was talking about had died because his heart had been dematerialized? And the same thing would happen to Hopkins? Anyway, the stranger then said he had to leave because he was low on energy and left. Hopkins saw a bright blue-white light coming in through his windows. He rushed outside, but the man was gone. In his driveway, he saw tire tracks like from a really big truck, like a semi-truck, a vehicle that would never have actually fit in his small driveway. Hopkins, who'd been feeling oddly calm while the weird-looking stranger was there, now suddenly started to panic as if his natural reactions had been suppressed and now they were trying to make up for lost time. He dashed inside and destroyed all the files. He later contacted the New Jersey UFO organization, but they denied having sent anyone to him or having anyone that fitted that offbeat description in their ranks. For months afterwards, he noticed his phone would act strange. Sometimes there'd be just static on the line, sometimes people would call in and get nothing, or they'd call and hear a message saying that the number had been disconnected. He contacted the phone company who determined that yes, his line was actually being interfered with, but they could not figure out from where or who was doing it. Mind, Mind your business. business. UFO researchers themselves can sometimes be the target of MIB visits. Frank Edwards, a broadcast guy and author of Flying Saucer's Serious Business, told colleagues that he'd been told to drop the UFO topic and had even been booted out of his union, the AFL, because he wouldn't stop and they'd been pressured from on high. And then, suddenly, he died, supposedly, of a heart attack. The editor of the magazine Saucer Research, Jack Robinson, routinely got phone calls from an electronically altered voice that always said the same words, Stop all saucer research. He and his wife were also harassed by men in black who would stand across the street staring at their apartment for hours at a time. And sometimes he would come home and see that someone had obviously broken in surreptitiously and rifled through his belongings. This went on for days until a friend, Timothy Beckley, popped by, saw one of the men standing across the street and took that man's picture. The man left and the MIBs never returned. More recent, More recent MIBs. MIB shenanigans still go on today. In 2002, actor Dan Aykroyd was working on a docu-series about UFOs for the sci-fi channel called Dan Aykroyd's Out There, in which he would interview well-known figures in the community, people like Linda Moten Howell, Steve Greer, and John Mack. Eight episodes had already been filmed and were in the can, and the show was almost ready to be aired. Aykroyd is actually a believer in UFOs and has endorsed MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, which is the oldest and largest UFO nonprofit in the world that tries, at least most of the time, to do something resembling actual research into UFO reports. His interest in the phenomenon was sparked by an odd thing that happened to him in the 1980s while in upstate New York on a trip with his wife. In the middle of the night, he woke up with a powerful urge to go outside. He said to his wife, they're calling me. I want to go outside. Something outside wants me to come out and see them. 
It would turn out that very night, literally thousands of people in the New England and Eastern Canada area would report the exact same thing right around 3 a.m. Those that did go outside say they saw a huge, we're talking like a few miles high, pink spiraling vortex in the sky. Dan Aykroyd did not, however, since his wife convinced him to go back to bed. Sometime after that, he also saw what he described as a very fast-moving UFO when he was on vacation in Martha's Vineyard. The object was moving far faster than any plane. He estimated about 20,000 miles an hour. Anyway, so it's late January 2002. Dan Aykroyd's filming this UFO show, and he's standing outside the studio on 42nd Street in Manhattan on a cigarette break. Britney Spears gives him a call. She was hosting Saturday Night Live on February 2nd, which is Groundhog Day, coincidentally, and would he like to come on the show as well? While they were talking, Aykroyd noticed a black car with a license plate that somehow seemed to be out of focus. Two men dressed in classic MIB gear got out, one very tall, and stood staring at him, giving him some serious stink eye. Aykroyd at first just kind of ignored it, it's New York, it's full of weirdos, and started walking off. Then he registered what he'd seen, hey, that's like the men in black thing, turned around quickly, but the two men and the vehicle were not there, they had vanished. Two hours later, he got a phone call from the Sci-Fi Network saying that the show that he was filming had been canceled, all filming would stop immediately, and he was to exit the property. He has never been given an explanation for what happened or why they canceled it, and the show has never aired. Niagara, Niagara Falls, Falls and the Tale of Jack, Jack and Jeff. And Jeff. In 2008, Shane Sovar, the hotel manager at a Sheraton overlooking Niagara Falls, saw a brightly lit object in the sky heading towards his hotel, getting about 60 feet above the roof. As it got closer, it slowed down and he saw it was a large black triangle with a pulsing red light on the front, almost like a heartbeat, and it was totally silent. Later, two men in black visited the hotel. According to three separate witnesses who saw them, they entered the lobby, setting out out that creepy, uncanny valley type vibe, demanding to know where Sovar was. A camera in the lobby managed to capture the two men entering. You can see stills from that video and more on the video version of this episode on the Conspiracy Clearinghouse YouTube channel. Now, one place this got written about was the UFO blog Out There with Ted by Ted Bonnet, who was a former producer for NBC and CNN, and Jack Van Eyck, a newspaper journalist and editor who's written a lot about Skinwalker Ranch, among other things. The two of them also ran the UFO Grid podcast back in 2013 and have been trying to fund a film project about weird events in Utah called the Shenandoah Experiment. In October 2014, just after they wrote about this Niagara Falls incident, they were contacted by a man identified identified as Jack Smith, which is a pseudonym. And Jack Smith had a weird and rather wonderful tale to relate. Jack is a man who has lived most of his life in fear. He grew up in Lock Raven, Maryland, which is just north of Baltimore, and remembers playing in some woods nearby when he was five years old, making tree forts and things like this. This would have been around 1965. One day he met an odd-looking kid. He knew it was a kid because it was small, like his size. But this kid was bald and had really, really big eyes with no eyelids. Jack thought maybe this kid had been in a fire since there was another boy in his kindergarten who was a burn victim and looked kind of like that. The strange boy was dressed in something like a jumpsuit with a big high collar. They walked towards a humming sound from deeper in the woods and the boy showed Jack a piece of some sort of like aluminum foil that projected a beam of darkness not light of darkness. 
standing in front of the metal craft, standing in front of a metal craft in the woods about the size of a van. There were two other boys that looked just like the strange boy, but one of them was a little bit taller and, and sort of spindly, almost like a praying mantis. Jack got scared, but then the beam of darkness came out of the foil thing and he passed out. When he woke up, he was in the same place in the woods alone. He had a number of abrasions and bruises, and he had a small scooped-out scar the size and shape of a BB in his leg. He later said it was as if someone had used a very small melon baller to just take out a little section of his leg. Then when he was 13, he started getting bad nosebleeds all the time. The memories of this day in the woods started coming back to him. This went on for three years. Then in 1976, when he was 16 and now living outside of Philadelphia in the suburb of Wagontown, he woke up in the middle of the night to see two small, large-headed beings standing next to his bed, as well as, again, that taller, insect-like shape that he remembered from the woods. They leaned in close and started communicating with him without moving their mouths. He blacked out and came to in a field behind his house, holding hands with a five-year-old boy he did not know, walking towards a large, brightly lit, wheel-like object. Then the memory stops. Jack would go on to have similar experiences, or at least memories of similar experiences, for the rest of his life. Needless to say, being a repeat abductee took its toll on his relationships and made it even hard for him to hold down a jobs at times. He got a reputation for being something of a kook and difficult to deal with. He was also repeatedly contacted by the men in black who would always find him no matter where he went, no matter how far away he moved. They were a constant presence, lurking around the fringes of the life he kept trying over and over to make for himself. Sometimes they would just stare at him or shadow him. Sometimes they would talk to him, telling him things, things he said he will never share with anyone else because he is just too afraid. Then in 2009 or so, Jack was working in a shop in Salem, Massachusetts when a customer came in. There seemed something familiar about him and the customer felt the same about Jack and they got to chatting. The other guy's name was Jeff Robinson. Jeff related his story. Around 1960 or early 1961, Jeff's family had moved to Newton, New Hampshire and become friends with Barney and Betty Hill, who lived in Portsmouth, which is just 30 miles or so northeast of Newton. Of course, they'd heard all about the Hill's alleged alien encounter in 1961, the first major one reported in the United States, and Jeff's family had tangential connections to UFOs even before he was born. In 1971, his family had moved to Wagontown near Philadelphia, Philadelphia and had him. When Jeff turned five in 1976, weird things started to happen to him. After some careful questioning, Jack figured out that this guy, this Jeff, who just walked in randomly into the shop he was working in in Massachusetts, was that same five-year-old boy from that night in the field back in 1976. What a crazy coincidence. Jeff, because he was only five at the time, didn't really remember that night, but he could tell Jack that ever since then, he'd been plagued by strange things, like weird visits from small, bald, large-eyed creatures. He'd even chased one with a baseball bat once. His parents also reported strange things going on around their house, but refused to move because, damn it, this is our house. When Jeff was 18, he left home and the weirdness behind. He says whenever he goes back to visit, he will not stay in the house after dark. So Jack kind of remembered Jeff. Jeff doesn't remember Jack, but it doesn't matter. The two became fast friends. Great, Great UFO, UFO story, story, but where's, where's the, the men, men in, black? in black? Yeah, yeah, I'm getting to it. 
On April 13th, 2014, Jack was in New Orleans with his friend Jane, which is not her real name either, a spa manager who agreed to go on vacation with her good pal to the Big Easy. They had breakfast and then sauntered down to the platform for the River Street streetcar line, which goes from Canal and Bourbon Street right next to the French Quarter, down to the Mississippi and along the riverfront, ending at French Market Station and the New Orleans Jazz Museum. This is a perfect route for sightseeing. They'd walked through the French Quarter, going down to the Bienville Station at the river just off Woldenburg Park around noon to catch the streetcar. Then Jack spotted, standing there on the platform in broad daylight, two men in black. Black suits, white shirts, thin black ties, black fedoras, dark sunglasses, all this despite the fact that it was a very hot 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Two men were tall, had strangely oblong faces with thin, small lines for their mouths. Almost like a weird, semi-abstracted mask. When they moved, they moved stiffly, almost like robots, and they often moved in unison. The two men looked over at Jack, stared at him a moment, and then quietly talked to one another. As Jane, who also saw them, put it, they opened their mouths slightly and yet somehow managed to be communicating without actually moving their mouths. After about 20 minutes of waiting, I guess public transportation in New Orleans is not too efficient, they again seemed to communicate without speaking, turned as one, and walked across the street, getting into a shiny black car with an unusual license plate. Jane thought it was a foreign license plate, and the car drove off. Jane and Jack went to have lunch, and he ended up telling her his whole story about the strange incidents from his childhood and the constant harassment from the men in black. He said it was unheard of that they would show themselves during the day, and it was also unheard of that they would show up when he was with somebody else. Every other encounter had always happened when he was alone. Now, during that long wait on the tram platform, Jack had managed to use his phone to video them, and he wanted to have a backup, so he sent her a copy of the file. But the next day, she was very surprised to find out that somehow, unexplainably, her phone's SD card had deleted everything on it, including all of her New Orleans vacation pictures, and of course, that video. Jack still had his copy of the video, however, so he sent a copy to Jeff, his friend that he'd met in Massachusetts. However, a few hours after he got the video, Jeff said that his phone's memory spontaneously erased itself and all of its data. Jeff talked with Out There With Ted because he said he was tired of living in fear of the men in black. Now, this was all written up on their website in 2014, but there does not seem to be the promised follow-up article on this, so no idea what happened to Jack and Jeff. John, John Keel on the on Trail, the trail. UFO researcher and parapsychologist John Keel, who got famous with his 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies, which was actually made into a pretty good film in 2002, starring Laura Linney and Richard Gere. Keel told the Congress of Scientific Ufologists in 1967 that he was dedicated to tracking down and exposing the men in black, who he called the silencers. His research had even uncovered stories of men in black with unusually dark complexions, silencing people just before a UFO sighting, not after. So something screwy is certainly going on here. He found a whole neighborhood that had been terrorized by MIBs in Washington State in 1967 after the entire community had seen a UFO. That same year, UFOs were seen by multiple people in New Jersey, including some police officers. But mere minutes after the sighting ended, four men showed up claiming to be Air Force officials and harassed the witnesses, telling them they needed to keep quiet about what they'd seen or they would be in serious, serious trouble with the government. 
Sometimes Keel, who has a vast network of contacts, will get word of an MIB incursion and rush to the scene, arriving sometimes just minutes after they've left. He said there are far more victims of MIBs than anyone really suspects, because many people don't even report it, and he thinks of them as a sort of terrorist organization. He noticed that almost everyone who encounters them ends up with headaches, black eyes, and other signs of physical trauma, as well as a strange aversion to talking about what they have been told to remain silent about. These silencers, he thought, were brainwashing people, and law enforcement couldn't even cope with something this unusual, so again, it went uninvestigated and unreported. He even believed he'd uncovered the very first Men in Black encounter in documents from 1897, when strange pottery fragments were found in a town in Texas, and shortly afterward, a man dressed in black, quote, with an oriental complexion, and a strange, quietly threatening manner, bought all the pieces from people who'd collected them, told them to never talk about them again, and departed. Keel has spoken to people in the Air Force who not only deny that the MIBs come from them, but say they're keen to see one for themselves. Among other things, whoever they are, they're impersonating government officials, which is a crime. Over the years, Keel has amassed a lot of various information and has come to believe that UFOs are real, but they are part of a vast plot by non-human intelligences that he calls ultra-terrestrials first uses this term in his 1970 book, Operation Trojan Horse. He believes that ultra-terrestrials can manipulate matter at its most basic level and have been influencing mankind for centuries. They're the source of legends of monsters, fairies, vampires, poltergeists, mysterious aircraft, black-eyed children, black helicopters, and everything else. Anywhere an anomalous event occurs to cover up what they're really up to, and they've been doing it for centuries. He is undecided as to exactly where they come from, but he thinks they're either interdimensional beings making incursions into our dimension or a future human civilization using time travel. He thinks they could be totally biological or they might be biomechanical constructs. Or maybe, he suggests in another book, someone actually owns the Earth and is using it as sort of a Disneyland of the gods which is a great phrase and also the title of another book he wrote. One thing is for sure, though, he says, that men in black are absolutely real and are at the heart of every strange and anomalous occurrence that has ever been reported. So MIBs might be aliens with a bad understanding of human psychology, or maybe they're just jerks. Maybe they're interdimensional beings. Maybe they come from our own future. Maybe nothing is as it seems and all bets are off. Or maybe they're actually government agents engaged in a campaign of disinformation. Oh, you think that sounds unlikely? Well, wait until we look at Majestic 12 and the sad and infuriating case of Paul Benowitz. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.